Christian life is love. You say, well, love for what? Love for who? Love for Christ. You see, the Christian has been changed and experienced a love that is deeper than anything we can really comprehend or describe adequately. And we think about love, it is a deep and wide subject in the scriptures and has many applications depending on the context. But in this context, we see the love of Christ and how it has impacted the heart and life of Paul and others who are serving with him. Now the passage here begins with his understanding of the fear of God and the need to persuade or plead with others. He says that on the, uh, the follow-up of emphasizing that all of us will give account before God for the judgment seat of Christ someday. But Paul's bringing to light the importance of the ministry of the gospel, and he's concerned really with the Corinthians being influenced by false teachers who are not functioning based on the new covenant. And so he's emphasizing who they are and that God is the one who's called them and known them uh, because there was others who were preaching Christ uh, for their own sake. Uh, they gloried in appearance and not in heart. And that's what he emphasizes in, in these earlier verses. And what you look at with Paul is that Paul was so zealously committed to Christ that some might even think he's a little crazy because of how committed he is, what he's enduring. If you look at verse 13, he says, he says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. You ever heard that kind of language like, well, that's so-and-so, they're just beside themselves. In other words, they kind of lost their mind, right? Uh, I think the King James in Acts described one of the rulers says that he's mad, right? He's, he's gone crazy, talking about the Apostle Paul. But what you look at with Paul and Barnabas and his ministers, those that are with him, he's described in Acts as men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would anyone do such a thing? Why would anybody risk their life for Christ? Well, the answer is in verse 14 and 15, where it ties into the love of Christ. It is the love of Christ that controls them and grips them and leads them to live their life in such a way. As I read of Paul's passion and what he endures and what he explains here, I'm often put to shame in my own heart. I'm convicted by what I read in this particular passage. He and the early church were so committed to Christ that they were willing to forsake everything. They were willing to endure the hatred of men. They were willing to suffer through persecution all for Christ. And it's because of who Christ is, what he's done for them, and at the core of that is the love of Christ bestowed upon them. It had changed their hearts. It changed the direction of their life. So what do we see here that gripped Paul and should also grip us for Christ? Two things in your notes you'll see, two main headings, and we'll come through these and, and uh, bring out some things I think would be good for us to recognize. The first thing I want to point out is that they discerned the love of Christ. Why did they live in such a way? They discerned the love of Christ, they understood and saw, to an extent, I say, how deep the love of Christ was. Now, when you really get down to the nuts and bolts, the love of Christ is really beyond our own comprehension, isn't it? I can't fathom the depth of Christ's love towards his people. But he has described it plainly in the scriptures where we can detail it in certain ways that really stir our hearts. And notice three things about the love of Christ in this that we can glean from this. The first thing I want to point out is that Christ's love is eternal. Christ's love is eternal. And this this really obviously is going to go beyond our comprehension because we're finite beings. We operate in a realm of beginning and ending, but God doesn't operate in that sort of way. He's beyond that. He is no beginning. He has no ending. You see, because God is eternal, all his attributes also are eternal. 
can't separate them from him. They are part of him. And one key attribute of God we see in the scriptures displayed in the gospel is that of his love. Now understand that when it comes to love, God does not just have love. It's not something that he just grabbed and possessed. The Bible says that he is love. It is part of his intrinsic character in nature. 1 John 4, 8 tells us, If anyone who does not love love does not know God, because God is love. It doesn't just say that God has love, but that he is love. So when you think about God being love, that being part of his character, his nature, is his attribute, the love of God for us, consider this, the love of God for his people has always been. It didn't have a beginning. It has just always been. Now, anybody here be able to wrap your mind around that? Nope. <laughs> I can't. I can't. And I know you can't. The greatest theologians of this earth cannot wrap their mind around that. See, God did not begin to love us once we came into existence. His love is not based on who we would be or what he saw in us. His love is based only on the good pleasure of his will within himself. That's hard for us to kind of comprehend. See, God simply, I would say simply, but at the same time complexly, <laughs> loved us even before we ever were born or came into existence. How can that be? Because he knew us before we ever came into existence. He ordained what happens in history and who comes into history. He said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.3 about his plan for him, and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, it's one thing, you know, when you, you, you get news that you're going to have a baby, and then you automatically have a love for that that baby that's in the womb, that's developing. But you had no clue who that was going to be or the fact that this person would be until you got that news, right? Didn't exist yet. But it's not that way with God. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. And the same applies to all of his people. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around. But notice that not, God not only knew you before you existed, he also loved you before you loved you before you existed. Jeremiah 31.3, the scripture says, The Lord appeared to him from far away, and he'll listen to what the Lord says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Speaking of Israel, he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. You know what everlasting means? It means eternal. It means he didn't begin to love them at some point in history. His love began in eternity past. It has no beginning and it has no ending. See, even knowing the depths of sin we as his, that we as his people would plunge ourselves into, he still set his love upon us. You think about that. Listen to this quote from Arthur Pink. This one always gets me. He says, he foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. Think about that for yourself. He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed his heart upon me. Why would God do such a thing? Well, here's one reason we consider as Christians that because his love for his people, it is bound up in the redemptive work of Christ that he planned and predestined his people to be part of. <laughs> you understand that his love is bound up in his in the redemptive work of Christ. 
And so his eternal love is set upon us in that way that it can never be broken. Now let's look at a passage of scripture that communicates this deeper. It's in uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 through verse 39. Look at this passage. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31 through verse 39. I think it's important for us to recognize the context of this passage. The context of this passage is, is within the realm of redemption. It's in the realm of his redeemed. And you'll notice in verse 31, he says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, who's the us in view? Who's he talking about? He's talking about those whom he has redeemed and planned to redeem before creation. You see the golden chain of salvation, verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I mean, that's redemption beginning to end in a nutshell. Okay? Eternity past to eternity future. But verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Verse 35. Remember the us in view, it's his redeemed, his elect. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, he gives quite a great list there of things that can't separate us from the love of God. Why do you think none of those things can separate us from the love of God? Because God loved us before any of those things existed. <laughs> think about that. He loved us before any of those things existed. And, and so Paul understands the depth of the love of Christ. So much could be exhausted more about the love of God, but it is astounding that Christ would love us in such a way. Don't you agree? This is what Paul knew. This is what every believer needs to know. How deep God's love is for them. But notice with me letter B this evening. Not only is Christ's love eternal, Christ's love is sacrificial. Christ's love is sacrificial. You see, to know the sacrifice of Christ's love, we must remember who Christ is. Who is Jesus? Is he just some normal Jewish guy that was born and decided, you know what, I'll die this way? No. He's so much more than that. Jesus is the eternal God, the creator of heaven and earth and all that we know and all that we see. He is the God. He is all-powerful. All present, all knowing. There's not any that compares to him. He is the great I am mentioned in the Old Testament. And what does he have need of? What does God have need of? He has need of absolutely nothing. You think about God and his eternal existence, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three and yet one in perfect harmony and fellowship in eternity past. Did he have need of anything? Did he need creation? Did he need us? Nope. He has need of nothing. He is completely self-sufficient of himself. But yet, 
in his own wisdom and according to his good pleasure, he created, and not only did he create, he chose to redeem his sinful people from their sins. Did he have to redeem us from our sins? The answer is no, he did not. And yet we find that the infinite God stepped down into humanity to save humanity. Paul says of Christ in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and become, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, there really is no way to measure the sacrifice displayed by Christ in his incarnation and humiliation on the cross. But when you think about the demonstration of love, is there a greater way to manifest such a deep love as Christ has for his people? Now, people tend to manifest love in a variety of ways, don't they? I mean, especially today, what do you got? You know, go to the store, buy some candy, uh, that comes in a heart-shaped thing, buy some flowers, and, and, you know, that's a demonstration of love. You might buy some gifts. You might surprise your spouse with a special trip. You might help out with some things that they need help with. Uh, maybe you just demonstrate love by vocalizing it. You speak it, right? There's different ways to manifest love. Bethany did that today. She went to the new coffee shop here in Van Buren, and she brought me back a, a mocha, a latte, or something like that. Um, if you haven't tried it out, there's a new coffee shop right over here where, where uh, oh, what's that place called? The one that went out of business out of there. By Subway, you know what I'm talking about. But anyway, she brought me back a, a, a coffee this afternoon. I drank it about 3.30, and so I'm like wired right now. I don't, I, I don't know if I'm going to get any sleep tonight. And... Uh, I appreciate that token of love. It was really good, but it, has, it will probably come at a cost. <laughs> I might preach for another hour, so we'll, you better start praying now. But you, th you think about ways we demonstrate love. Beyond the vast ways a person may demonstrate their love, there's no greater demonstration of love than that of sacrifice. Now, sacrifice can come in various ways. You may sacrifice time, energy, resources to help others especially those who are nearest to us. You know, I, I think about the, the love of a mother that she has for her child, uh, especially a newborn. You know, when a mother has a newborn, there's such great sacrifice on their sake, sacrifice of sleep and energy. They're feeding the baby and changing diapers. And, and you know, every now and then the husband can jump in and help, but the mother bears the big load there, right? There's sacrifice because she loves the baby and she's going to care for that baby. But is there sacrifice greater than time, energy, and money? There is. It's called death. Is there a greater display of love sacrifice than that of death? There really isn't. There really isn't. Imagine someone giving their life for you. In other words, their life comes to an end so that you can live. I saw a video of a, a father who was making a video who, for his son who needed a heart transplant. And this father is willing and going to give his heart for his son to have his heart so that he can live. But that means that his dad's going to die. I thought, that just struck me. I'm like, he's going to give up the rest of his life so that his son may live. Why's he doing that? Because he loves him. He'll give his life for his son. And what greater love displayed could there be than that? And Jesus even tells us this. In John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid out his life for his friend. 
goes on to tell his disciples, you're my friends. Jesus laid down his life for them. Not just for them, but for those who believe. Even today, us, friends. Another great passage that describes this is Romans 8. I mean, excuse me, Romans 5. Go backwards in Romans for a moment. Romans 5. Look at verse 6 through 11. You notice this deep love that is displayed here. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we once were, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You know, Paul makes a good point here. Who's really willing to give their life up for somebody that's vile and corrupt? He says, well, maybe somebody would give their life for another good person. Chances are a little bit better for that. But, but here's the contrast. God in his love and Jesus in his love, he gave up his life for us while we were sinners. We were vile, wretched, wicked enemies of God. And while in that state, he died on our behalf. Contemplate that. While we were enemies, what would prompt such a love sacrifice as that? It's the love of God. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Christian, you and I are going to forever be amazed at the love of God. You'll never be able to get over it, even in heaven. You'll rejoice. The scars in Jesus, his hands and his side, remain as an eternal testimony of the love that he has displayed and what he did for us on the cross. But let her see, notice also that Christ's love, not only is it eternal, not only is it sacrificial, Christ's love is personal. It is personal. Now, we often think of the love of God in a general way, right? God bestows a love towards all his creation in a general sense. But consider the very specific nature of this in a very personal way. You know that God loves, God's love is very specific in nature, especially his love that accomplishes salvation. Consider it today for yourself. Are you a believer? Say, oh, yes, I am. I believe in Christ. I know him. Consider the fact that Christ loves you enough to shed his blood on the cross. Think of it in a very personal way. Consider the depth of your own sin. Can you measure your own sin? No, it's beyond measure. You can't measure the sin of your past, and you're not even done living yet. You've got a lot of sin ahead of you. You and I are bound to a flesh that sins. We cannot even begin to imagine that. How much sins piled up, past, present, and future, and yet Christ took every sin of yours upon himself when he died on that dark day, all so that you could become a child of God and be forgiven. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not See, Jesus died for me, this I know. 
say, how do I know that? Because I trust in him. My faith in him is a testament to my conversion. I am assured of my salvation. Nothing can change that based on his word. So we as Christians should be understanding of, of how deep the love of God is towards us. And this is what Paul is getting at. All right, you understand that in 2 Corinthians 5, we'll go back to that text. In 2 Corinthians 5, you notice that he says, the love of Christ controls me. That's the love that Christ has for Paul. The love of Christ controls me. It grips hold of his heart and mind. Which brings us to number two. You notice about Paul and those who are with him, those who he's describing, not only do they discern the love of Christ here, but their lives were dedicated to Christ, as we see in the latter part of this. Paul says his lo the love of Christ controls him. The word control means to hold within bounds, so as to manage or guide or direct. No dictionary uh, says about this word that it's to exercise continuous control over someone, to restrain or constrain. Some kind of give the idea of gripping or constricting. The love of Christ constricts and it grips, it takes hold of Paul that he cannot escape it. It squeezes him tightly. You ever just hug somebody and just love them so much you wish you could just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze, but you can't because you'll suffocate them? I mean, it, our, our little kids, you know, I'll pick up Spurgeon, I just love him so much, I just wish I could squeeze him, you know, as tight as I can, but I can't do that, right? It's an expression of love. The love of Christ takes hold of Paul. It will not let him go. It grips him and guides him into a, a new love for his own life. So, so the love of Christ produces in Paul, this is letter A, the love of Christ produces a love for Christ. There's a difference. Love of Christ produces a love for Christ. That's what we see in Paul. Paul's love for Christ exceeds his love for anything else in this world. And so it should. How could we not love Christ? With all of our heart, soul, and mind, above everything else, it, considering how deeply Christ loved you. John Calvin rightly comments here and says, For if we be not harder than iron, we cannot refrain from devoting ourselves entirely to Christ. When we consider what great love He exercised toward us, when He endured death in our stead. See, this is why, Christian, the chief love of your heart and life must be the Lord above everything else. Everything else. And when I say everything, it means absolutely everything. Now, we may love other things. We may love other people very greatly, very deeply. But there's one and only one who is to supersede all others, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. You say, I should love Jesus more than my spouse? Yes, you should. More than my mom or my dad? Yes, you should. More than my children? Yes, you should. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 37 and 38, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Christ is to be the first love of his people. Now this seems like such a hard position and call, right? And indeed it is. Because we love other people deeply. Is Christ worthy of such a love? Beyond question he is. It's not even a contrast. The person of Christ constrained Paul wholly. Here's just one other passage that kind of communicates that. It's in Philippians. 
Philippians 1, verse 20 through 24. Philippians 1, verse 20 and verse 24, Paul's writing about really his life and what he's giving his life to. He says in verse 20, As it is my eager expectation and a hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Look at this description, verse 21. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, but that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul gives us a glimpse into the struggle of his heart. He has a desire to go and be with Christ, but he knows that he has him here for a reason. But as long as Paul is here in this world, he says, my life is Christ. That's the description of his life. That's the description. Think about how would you describe your life? Well, my life is this, my life is that. Paul says, my life is Christ. That's how much he loves him. That's how much he is committed to Christ. My life is Christ. Now you say, well, that was just the Apostle Paul. Not every Christian should be so consumed with Christ, right? Them preachers, them apostles, they're just the super dedicated people, right? No, I struggle the same way you do. Us preachers are just men. So was Paul. He talks in Romans about his wrestling with his flesh. He does the things he hates and the things he loves and knows he should do, he struggles to do. He's just a man. Just like all of us. The one thing that was gripping him in his heart was his love for Christ and prompting him to live for Christ. What did Paul want for the Christians in Philippi? Look at verse 27. Look at what he says about them. He says to them, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You notice what he says there? Only let your manner of life, the way in which you live, be worthy or as it becometh of the gospel of Christ. In other words, the gospel of Christ should be interwoven into the fabric of our life. Why? Why? Because that's the foundation and core of life itself. Everything else, you understand, the gospel is woven into our life. That doesn't mean everybody's got to be a preacher, a missionary, or you know, do this and that. Every Christian can have the gospel woven into their life in their daily life wherever it is that God's called them to be and live and be. As a husband, as a father, as a worker, as a parent, as a child, whatever it may be. He says their manner of life was to be about the gospel of Christ. They were to strive together for the faith of the gospel of Christ. The gospel was to be the core of their life. If the gospel is going to be the core of our life, we've got to love Christ with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Now, by all means, we'll never love him as much as he's worthy of, will we? Our flesh is, limits us. Thomas Watson rightly said that. We can never love him as much as he deserves. But we must love him as much as we are able. We must love him as much as we are able. So that's a challenge to us. Is the gospel woven into our life? Is Christ really our first love? Which leads us to letter B. That Christ's love produces living for Christ. Not only does it produce love for Christ, the outward flow of that is living for Him. You notice in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 5, what does Paul say there? 
and that he died for all, that those who live, those who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake, for their sake, died and was raised. Those who live, think about that. That's a specific group of people, because not all live in the manner in which Paul is describing. See, those who are in Christ, converted, they've been made alive. They were dead in sin. But by the grace of God, through the gospel, in faith alone in Him, they are made alive. Ephesians 2.5 Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. But not only has the believer been raised to new life in the sense they have life eternal, they've been given new life in this world, meaning the Spirit of God resides in them, and they're no longer that dead sinner they used to be. What's that mean? That means that you as a Christian, you're no longer bound to the dominion of sin anymore. You have been set free to live unto Christ by His power. Because of Christ's death for us, the power of sin in one's life has also been broken for those who trust in Him. Christ's cross, therefore, frees the believer to a new way of life. Because the old way of life, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, was nothing but sin and darkness. That was the path we trode, or walked, tread. I don't know, I'm going to look it up later. The caffeine's got me a little overwired here. That was the path we walked. But now that we've been made alive, we've been set free from that. We've been risen. You understand, your conversion is a spiritual resurrection that takes place. And it's all by God's power that he's done this for you. So Christians are called and enabled to live new life under their Savior. And if we love Christ the way we should love him, then we will live in a different manner than we once did. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 15, If you love me, you what? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. There's a testament to our love for Christ. See, the love of Christ for us generates a love for Christ in us that causes us to live a different way. Paul says that those who live might no longer live for who? Might no longer live for who? themselves. That's the old life. No longer live for themselves, but rather we live for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do we love Christ above all else? If so, that will affect how we live. And living for Christ is no doubt it's going to bring about a life of service, a life of sacrifice, a life of even suffering. For a glorious Lord who's worthy of it all. This is the Christian calling. Paul gives a good sum of the Christian life here in Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That is the life we ought to tread as Christians. So the heart of Paul here in these two verses is so convicting to me. Convicting to me because I often find myself not living as I should live. Say, wait a minute, you're a preacher. Yeah, I told you I'm still a man too. All of us are called. All of us are called to recognize how deep the love of God is for us and to daily submit ourselves to Christ and love him above everything else in this world. 
So we think about ourselves, do we live in such a way? Do we recognize the love of God in such a way? Do I dedicate my life to Christ day in and day out because he is truly worthy, truly worthy of that? There is no love that compares to his.